Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Mark, welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Yeah, and I've got to do a special shout out to the Australian Shareholders Association for putting this together for us, which is um, it's always a bit of pride for me. I wear that as a you know, badge of honor that I get to uh, do this on behalf of them. So a special shout out. There is a link in the description if you are interested in joining the Australian Shareholders Association. Mark, I've never met you in person, but I did see, I believe I saw you hovering around at the FinFest by Equity Mates. And if I'm not mistaken, I really wanted to come over and say day, but I think everyone was trying to chat to you and everyone wanted to get a piece of Mark. So I'm glad we get to do this today. But mate, I've listened to a few other podcasts that you've done in interviews and I've watched many of your videos on Morningstar. So there's a lot to cover, but I figure the easiest way to break the ice with these types of conversations is just to ask you some like rapid fire questions, if you like. And one of the questions that I ask a lot of the guests that come on that have been doing this for a long time is, if I could only give you a false choice to pick between private and public companies to invest in for the next 10 years, which would you choose? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I will go with public just because that's obviously what I'm interested in. It's the way that I invest. And, you know, I think just the fact that I am used to that environment, I will pick public. Not that private does not have advantages, but I think sort of the approach that I take with investing being long-term oriented, you know, a lot of the things that happen day-to-day in the market, I kind of ignore. So yeah, I'll go with public. Okay. I like it. Good answer. Another question, which is quite a simple one. I imagine you get this quite a bit as part of your Q&A and a lot of the webinars and engagement that you do with investors is, does short selling work? This is your opinion only. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of a tricky one to answer because it, it really does depend how it's used. So obviously you profit if a share price falls. You can do that either in a speculative way. If you're betting something will go down, you can use it as hedging. But really the audience that I speak to, the audience that I care about is individual investors. And so I'm going to say, no, it does not work for individual investors and they should not do it. Mm, I like that. And I'm very much in agreement with you, mate. So the third and final kind of quick fire question is, who is one of the best, or you could even just say better capital allocators that you've come across that few people seem to talk about? Yeah, I'm going to go with Dave Swenson. So Dave Swenson ran the Yale Endowment for years. So he fortunately passed away in 2021. And he's kind of front of mind because I just wrote an article on him. But, you know, very briefly, when he took over Yale's endowment, so obviously it's a pool of money used to support the university. Really, endowments invested the way that a lot of individual investors invested at the time, right? So kind of a 60-40 portfolio. And the approach that he took is he looked at what they were trying to do. So partially, it's providing income, but also investing for a very long time period to support the university in the future. And he said, this doesn't really make sense. And, you know, he basically moved a lot into absolute return strategies, private equity, real assets, so infrastructure, property, things like that. He had this amazing track record where he turned, I think, $1.5 or $6 billion into over $30 billion at the end of his track record. 
And more importantly, he changed the way that a lot of people invest. And so not only endowments that have moved more into private investments, alternative investments, but also affected the way that a lot of Australians invest, right? If you look at industry super funds now, they've moved that way as well. So Aussie Super is obviously a good example. They can allocate in their growth, their high growth option, up to 15% into private equity, 30% into unlisted infrastructure, 30% into unlisted property. So really, he's revolutionized investing, had a great track record, and is impacting millions of Australians today that are saving and investing for their retirement. That's fantastic. I've heard his name passed around a few times, but uh, never made that, that connection to him kind of being, I guess, the pioneer of that movement. There was one thing that I, as I was reading through a recent article of yours on the Morningstar website, uh, and I might quote you uh, if I may, the quote is that my approach is to generate a sustainable and growing income stream in excess of the yield available from the overall index. My goal is not to exceed the return of the market, but instead to grow my income faster than that of the overall market. This is uh, an article which I can link to in the show notes. I'm curious, can you... like? had this out a bit for us. Can you add some context of why you chase higher income as opposed to, say, just trying to beat the index? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the thing about investing, and obviously for all of us, it's about us. It's about our goals. It's about our personal circumstances. It's also about our temperament and you know the approach that actually resonates with each of us. So provide a little bit background on me. And really what I'm referring to here is at a high level, I kind of have in my personal portfolio, two pools of money. I have retirement savings. So you can probably tell from my accent that I'm originally from the US, been in Australia eight, nine years at this point. So I've got some retirement savings in the US in 401ks, IRAs, et cetera. And then of course I have super in Australia. So you know, I consider those my retirement savings. I have a different strategy for those retirement savings. And what I'm talking about here is things that are outside of my retirement savings, so a portfolio that are in taxable accounts. And you know, really, once again, kind of looking at my own life, I don't have kids. I don't plan on having kids. And what I wanted to do was create an income stream that could support me at some point. Now, it partially does now. So I obviously have a job, but it does pay for extras like travel. And more will hopefully kick in as I get older. So it's very specific to that strategy that what I'm trying to do is generate income and an income stream that I can actually use. So that's really where that came from. And if we think about kind of traditional retirement savings and we think about withdrawal strategies and everything else, you know, I will deal with that and take more of a total return approach with my retirement savings. But really, right now, I'm trying to grow that income stream. and to me, it doesn't really matter. And I'm using this loosely. It doesn't really matter the size of my portfolio because I'm not planning on selling it off and using the money. What I'm planning on doing is using that pool of money to generate income. So that's really where that strategy came from. So yeah, very highly personal. And you know, obviously, it's good to hear different people's perspectives, but that certainly doesn't mean anyone should go out there and copy the way someone's investing because they could have very different circumstances that they don't actually describe. Absolutely. Tying it to your objectives is the key thing there in the circumstances. If I may ask a follow-up to that then, how does the portfolio like composition come together? What does it look like? How do you express that? Do you use things like listed investment companies, blue chip dividend stocks is what you favor? Do you look for growing dividends? Like, How can we think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a balance. I think that so much that we hear about in terms of portfolios and diversification, which is based more on position size, also applies to income. So number one, if we just talk about diversification, it's looking at what are the sources of income. In that case, it's, it's different securities. And it's making sure that I'm diversified from those income sources. Because obviously, as we saw during COVID, just a recent example, Dividends are not guaranteed. They are, of course, the choice of companies. As fortunes of companies change, they can be cut, they can be suspended. All of those different things can happen. So I think it's diversifying those income sources and also diversifying into different industries, different geographies, all the things that we would do in a regular portfolio when we're trying to diversify it. In terms of vehicles, it's it's a mix as well. So a combination of, as you said, sort of 
what I would consider more blue chip companies. To go back to kind of the Dave Swenson example, also real assets are something I'm pretty interested in because real assets generally do well with inflation and they generally have automatic inflation escalators in the contracts they have. If you have a airport, for example, and you are getting landing fees from airlines, generally inflation's built into all those contracts. And so trying to create that mix, but also I use listed vehicles as well. So I do use ETFs, for example, as part of that as well. So, you know, more of a quality tint, more of a high dividend tilt. There's a lot of those vehicles available out there. So it's a mix. Mm, that's great. It's um, you're kind of agnostic to product and to kind of vehicles, as you say. So uh, you kind of get the best of everything. You just pick and choose, right? You're an individual investor. That's what you can do. There was one follow-up question, not for something that we'd spoken about previously, but something that I heard you talk about with the Equity Mates community beginning of 2022 or thereabouts, I think it was. You made a bold prediction, right? And I think this is a bit of tongue-in-cheek because the guys force everyone to make a bold prediction. And you said you might end 2022 with around about 5% cash in your portfolio. And this was quite telling actually because the markets were extremely volatile that you weren't to know what the next 10 or 12 months or however long it was wouldn't would like ensue like what would be part of that and i'm curious to know where that ended for you not to take any of their glory but i was just fascinated i had to follow up yeah i mean much like many of their bold predictions it did not actually come true <laughs> but you know really really what that was in reference to is over the past five, six years, I've kind of watched valuation levels creep up, saw a lot of speculation happening in the markets. And I didn't necessarily sell anything. But what I did do is I turned off dividend reinvestment plans that I had. And a lot of my new savings and contributions I kept in cash. So that's kind of where that cash had built up from. And, you know, I think as part of that prediction, I was looking at markets at the beginning of last year saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but seemingly from a valuation standpoint, from investor behavior standpoint, you know, this kind of looks like a bubble. And, you know, obviously we, we did see, not necessarily in Australia, we did see a pullback, especially in the US. But I will say I probably invested about, I don't know, six or 7% of that cash bucket I had. So yeah, it's brought me down, but certainly not to my uh, to my five percent. We listen to ourselves back. I don't know about you. I hate listening to myself back, but um, I do always pay attention to when things were said. And it was quite, like I said, it was quite prescient. You you took the the market at the time, and you thought, well, okay, let's uh, think about where markets are right now. And it seemed like a, a fantastic call. So I thought I'd just follow up with you there. But mate, there's so much to cover because your role is so unique in our industry. Not only do you get to, I guess, speak on behalf of like Morningstar and what the Morningstar community does, like the research analysts, whether they are researching funds, markets or companies, but you also get to educate people. So I'm hoping we can kind of bring some of that together and then listeners will be able to explore some of the, the methodologies and strategies that we talk about. But I thought maybe one of the things that I'm quite passionate about is the ability to research ETFs, the ability to research managed funds. For most people, that seems like a very foreign thing. So they're quite comfortable understanding companies and, you know, a company makes money by selling widgets or services and it makes a profit if it, you know, keeps the cost low, et cetera. But when it comes to researching funds, fund managers, active funds, passive funds, et cetera, they kind of get stuck in this kind of like abstract part of like, their, I guess, philosophy of like, how do I research a person that's researching other things, if you get what I mean? So how does Morningstar tackle this? What's the process of putting a rating on a fund or an ETF? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll walk through that process. And I think the advantage that a company like Morningstar has is obviously we have access to the people that are actually investing the money. And that's something that, so I will separate this a little bit between sort of what we do, which isn't necessarily something that everyone can replicate versus what you can do as an individual investor doing that. But kind of start with us. And, you know, if we look at Australia, we have a team called our manager research team that covers around 450 funds, ETFs, and LIPS. And the process is actually exactly the same. So it's the same methodology 
for an ETF versus a fund, same approach that the team takes. And there are, of course, differences in the product, but a lot of those differences are the way that investors can access it. So they don't necessarily apply to somebody going in and researching them. And really, the first thing we do is we divide this whole universe up into different categories. And that just allows us to compare them. Because really, when you're going out there and you're buying a fund or an ETF, what you're looking for as investors, you're looking for exposure to something. Now, that exposure could be something very, very broad. It could be, I want global shares, or it could be very, very small. But either way, we really want to compare those. And we want to give people a rating that represents our view of what the best way to access that category is. So it's important to state that. And the other thing, I get this question all the time that when we rate something highly, people will come in and ask, oh, so that's going to do well. Well, not necessarily. We think it will do well versus its peers. But remember, if the market goes down 30% and this fund goes down 20%, that's fantastic. Not a great outcome for you if you're an investor and you've lost 20% of your money, but fantastic for the manager. So it is important to sort of start with the fact that we look at that category. And the other thing that our analysts do is they give an opinion on the best way to access that category. And this is where we get into active and passive. And there are some nuances in how we would evaluate an active funder ETF versus a passive funder ETF. But based on the asset class, that exposure you want to get, in some cases, we think passive is better. In some cases, we think this is an opportunity for active. And there's a lot that goes into that, obviously, looking at the efficiency of the market or how much prices reflect values. But that's really the starting point. So putting that overlay on everything. And then, yeah, very simple. And, and obviously jump in with questions. I'll go through this pretty quickly. But really what we're looking at, number one, is we're looking at the process. What is the process that somebody takes to select investment? So for an active perspective, that would be, okay, literally what is a portfolio manager and the analyst doing? Like, how are they taking this giant universe of available, we'll call shares, for example, are they going in looking at the ASX 200 and picking what goes into that portfolio and what's that process? And this is where, obviously, we have an advantage because we get to talk to them and have them explain that to us. But it's also available in a lot of literature that, uh, that funds put out. And then on the passive side, if we're looking at process, if it's following an index, how is that index constructed? And, you know, what are the underlying rules that govern that index? So we think a lot about these broad indexes, but there's also very narrow indexes, right? Especially when we get into kind of factor investing, right? If we're looking for quality shares or high dividend shares, even if it's tracking an index, that index has a lot of rules that govern that. And then we look at the people. Do they have the experience that we think, the education, all of those factors that you would want with somebody managing your money. So we evaluate that. We certainly go and we look at the price. So price is huge. So what are you paying? What are the costs? Because obviously, whatever return they're actually earning, those costs come out of it before you get your return as an investor. So that's really important too. And we also look at the parent company. You know, Is the parent company supporting the needs of the team that's actually managing this money. So whether that's retaining talent, paying them sufficiently to retain talent, giving them the different resources we need, we look at that. And finally, and I'll give a little caveat with this, we do look at performance. We don't necessarily look at performance the way that unfortunately a lot of individual investors do, where they just find whatever's performed the best and invest in it. We look at performance over different things that happen in the market. Right. So if you're trying to go with a, let's say, a quality strategy, you're trying to find quality companies, you would think that they would outperform in times of stress and market stress when the market's going down. So we do look at it within that context rather than just kind of looking at absolute performance, which I think is, as I said, what a lot of investors do. When I had a stint at a research house where I covered managed funds, the debate was always can passive funds get the same like rating using your rating system would be like can a passive fund have a gold rating 
and can an active fund have a gold rating in the same sector? And so that is the nuance which you mentioned, which I'm curious about is, is this a decision made at like the house level? So say you're looking at Australian equities, like blue chip Australian shares, is the decision made at that level that a passive or active strategy is better and therefore only one of those can have gold or can both of them have gold, if you get what I mean? They can certainly both have gold. So what we would look at is we would look at something on an asset class level. And we do have this report that we put out every six months called the Active Passive Barometer. And we basically look at every category and we see what are the percentages of active managers who have outperformed over the last 10 years. And the answer is most of them don't. And we can go and we can say that if you want exposure to large caps or big companies in Australia, we can say, we think a passive strategy is better for you. But at the same time, some managers are going to outperform and they're still trying to identify those. So we can certainly, in that case, have a gold-rated passive strategy and a gold-rated active strategy saying, we think this is going to be one of those managers, although there won't be a lot. This is going to be one of those managers we think will outperform. So, okay. The people that subscribe to Morningstar uh, investor subscription, do they have access to that barometer? Or is that something that's like behind closed doors? No, they do. So yeah, we publish it every six months. And yeah, really it's just, it's essentially just a chart that's looking at over different time periods. Yeah. The percentage of managers who have outperformed. So yes, they do have access to it. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, I'm going to try and dig that up. It's really interesting then. I guess one of the things that I like to do when I look at research houses is I like to look at, if we take that initial universe that you spoke about, like where you start the process, you filter it, uh, you perform your you know, couple of hour meeting if, with the managers themselves, you write your reports, you put it through a committee, all that sort of stuff. How much of the total universe end up with say like a gold rating, which is the best rating? It depends. Not a lot. So actually, I don't know the numbers right in front of me, but yeah, it's very few. So, you know, one example is for global equities, we have only eight gold rated ETFs in Australia, for example, that cover the global equities space, which is, yeah, not a lot if you look at that overall universe. So, yeah, it is certainly something that's difficult for a manager to get. I had a look. I could find some distribution data online, Mark. I found one from 2020, which surveyed every fund in Australasia, and it was less than 10% of funds. So, and that's what I want to see, right? As a someone that uses this information, I want to know that the research house is bringing conviction to their ratings. They don't just hand them out, which I think is, a, is one of the signs of like when maybe the model isn't working necessarily. So like that kind of high conviction is what I want from a research house because you know, your analysts see everything, right? I don't want them just to hand these out. I want the best of the best when I when I log in and try and search for one of these funds or ETFs. There is, the, I guess, the other side of the business, which is really like the really impressive side of the business, which is equities research. And this is something that I've always been a fan of. You know, I've been a subscriber to Morningstar for, I think it's the longest subscription I've held, actually. Well, thank you for that. Because I just love the methodology and how, I remember watching, I think it was Pat Dorsey many years ago, talk about the Morningstar like research process, how it adds rigor to the, you know, you're investing. And I just thought this just makes a lot of sense. So maybe for those people unfamiliar with it, you can kind of talk through like the key pillars of how you research a company. Uh, and then maybe I'll just follow up with any questions I have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the important thing, and you know, I'll go through, I'll go through the certainly the different things our analysts look at. But, you know, the important thing, once again, is, you know, what we're trying to do is provide information to people to find securities that are right for them. So once again, as I was talking about earlier, you know, what is your strategy? What shares will actually fit into that? But, you know, at the end of the day, the research methodology is sort of grounded in the Ben Graham, Buffett approach to things. So you're going to hear a lot of Buffett and Ben Graham words in this. But overall, at a high level, they're looking at two things. And, and what we want to find and what Buffett always talks about is we want to find great companies and we want to find them at reasonable prices. And so we can kind of start with the great company side of things. And from a great company perspective, and once again, a very Buffett term that we use is a moat. And I'll spend a little bit talking about a moat. We can go into it more later, of course, if you have questions. But if we think about capitalism and we think about 
if it's working properly. It's supposed to benefit us as consumers. So we're supposed to have a bunch of companies out there with goods and services who are trying to create better goods and services for us. And we, of course, benefit because we get better things. And they're also trying to, of course, have the cheapest price point because that's how they're competing against each other. And that's how they're competing for the dollars that we spend. So if it works properly, it's supposed to be really good for consumers. We get good stuff. We get it for as cheap as possible. And, you know, hopefully everything, everyone's happy with that. But we put on our business owner hat. Those are both terrible things, right? If I own a business, I don't want to keep investing in my business, right? I want to keep the money as profits. And I don't want to keep cutting prices. I want to charge as much as I possibly can for everything and not cut prices. So really what a mode is, is it's that sustainable competitive advantage that keeps competitors at bay, right? Because we know in capitalism, as soon as you come up with a good idea, someone's going to copy you. And as long as they're able to. And so what we're looking for is those companies that prevent that competition from leading to bad outcomes as business owners, which is investing a lot and continually investing a lot in cutting prices. So we start there and we have moat ratings on securities that we cover. So for companies that we think have a sustainable competitive advantage that will last for 20 years or more, we give that a wide moat rating. And then if we think it will last 10 years, we'll give it a narrow moat rating. And then most companies we cover have no moat. And there's a lot of implications I can certainly go into of like how that impacts companies and sort of how we can see that. But that's really the premise of it. So it's finding those great companies. And then the flip side is, of course, looking at price. And so, you know, we're looking at valuation levels there. So like analysts everywhere, really the way that that happens is you are creating a discounted cash flow statement, right? Because if you own a company, the only thing you care about is what happens in the future. So our analysts are estimating what they believe will happen in the future, the cash flows that company will generate. And then they're discounting that back to the present day, right? Just that very simple premise that if I told you, I'll give you $10 now, or I'll give you $10 a year from now, everyone would pick now, right? So cash flows in the future have to be discounted. And so what we're doing is we're coming up with a price there, but and that price represents the fair value. So that's what we believe it's worth. But once again, kind of going back to the whole Ben Graham and Warren Buffett thing, that doesn't mean that if we think something's worth twenty dollars, that you go out there and buy it for you know nineteen ninety nine, right? Like we need that margin of safety, and you know that margin of safety protects us as investors. Number one, because well. A discounted cash flow model looks precise and you know it's in Excel and everything adds up. It's not actually that precise because you're predicting the future. And the future, of course, is unknowable. So we want that margin of safety that protects us from one, those estimates not being completely accurate, which they never are, right? Nobody is able to accurately predict the future for a company and also for anything that may happen. Like, and once again, not to use COVID as an example all the time like a virus that sweeps the world and shuts down a bunch of businesses, right? And so that margin of safety is based on something called an uncertainty rating. And the uncertainty rating is really based on business risk. And this is another thing that I think investors need to think about a lot, that not every business has the same risk profile. You know, if I am a global company that has a lot of product ranges, that has been established, that has low debt, that is in a non-cyclical industry. So basically, I'm selling stuff that people will buy no matter what's happening with the economy. So sort of consumer defensive stuff, groceries is a perfect example, you know, are natural things that we need, food, medicine, things like that. That's a very different risk profile than a biotech company that has some promising research, but no products on the market that's dealing with one very specific disease, it's very different. And so those more, the lower business risk companies have lower uncertainty. It makes it easier for our analysts to predict things. There's less variables, right? If you're going out there and looking at Coca-Cola, sales are not going to jump by 50% next year, and they're not going to fall by 50% next year, right? But if you're that biotech example, 
and you don't hit on that drug, you could go out of business, right? If it doesn't get approved by whatever regulatory agency in whatever country it's in that needs to approve it, like they could go out of business or the research could not work. And so we build in bigger margins of safety for riskier companies. So riskier from a business risk perspective. And that's built into that star rating. And basically the star rating says a five-star company is what we consider the cheapest. So the biggest discount from the fair value, a one-star most overvalued. Basically those ranges are different based on that business risk that we see. So just to confirm for folks that are listening or watching, you can have a company that is super high quality, but it gets a low star rating because of the valuation. Exactly, exactly. And oftentimes that happens, right? Like we, as investors, we're generally willing to pay more for companies that are great. And very much that's sort of the evolution that Buffett went through. Right. You know, he used to be this like pure Ben Graham value investor, that cigar butt method, right? Where I'm going to go out and find maybe it's a terrible company, but I'll go out and find it if I think it's worth a little less and I'll get something from it. Kind of changed his thinking. And now he's like, I want to buy great businesses and I just have to buy them at a reasonable price. So I think that's kind of how we have to think about it as investors. So that would be that's interesting. So there's no like sell rating. So it's just like one star. Is that right? Yeah. And once again, you know, I think it goes back to the point that this is supposed to be an input into your investment process. And we can sit there and say something's very overvalued in our opinion, but it's about you, right? And it's about sort of what you're looking to do. Maybe I have a very different perspective if I've owned something for 15 years and I've got this huge capital gain that I'll have to pay if I sell it. But I can still sit there and say, oh, that's pretty overvalued, but I'm just not going to sell it at this point. But maybe it's a bad time to add to that position. Yeah. There's so many things that I kind of want to cover off there. I do like that there's no explicit sell rating because I think that's where a lot of people get stuck up, hung up on constantly trading. So it's almost just saying, we think it's overvalued, but you can read our research and you can see it's a high quality company. Um, so you can make that more informed decision yourself rather than say it's a sell, it's a sell, it's a sell, which sets off alarm bells for a lot of people. Uh, I guess there's one thing in the analyst valuation work and in the even in the research process that a typical analyst would go through, how does the team, I guess, get the cross-pollination of ideas, but also avoid things like groupthink? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So, you know, we cover so we cover 1600 shares globally. And we cover them all using the same methodology. And as you said, you know, it's important to maintain those standards and maintain that methodology and make sure it's consistently applied because, you know, analysts will cover a certain sector. And obviously, as an investor, that's not the way I invest. So, you know, it's great that our mining analysts covers Rio and BHP, and maybe that gives me a good comparison between the two, but that's not my whole portfolio, right? So you do need to you do need to maintain those standards so that it is the same methodology. It is comparable. But at the same time, yeah, groupthink is obviously a problem. I mean, you don't want a bunch of people sitting around a room convincing themselves that they're right. And I think that's really up to the management teams in those research teams that we have in various locations around the world to challenge that thinking. And I think anyone, and, and this is good advice for your all of us, right? When we're trying to invest, and what I always tell people is challenge your thinking. Because we never do that, right? You know, we've got this sort of confirmation bias where we go out and seek information that just agrees with what we already think. And, you know, what I always tell people is, okay, so yeah, it's important to write down the reasons that you think you should buy something, but spend some time writing down the reasons why you shouldn't buy it or go out and find a mate that will challenge you on what you're trying to do. So, you know, I think it's the same thing. And it's really kind of about team culture and the way those teams are run to make sure that that happens. Mm, absolutely. The invert, as Charlie would say, invert, always invert. So to try and illustrate this point, I was hoping maybe you could bring a couple of companies that maybe Australian companies that do receive that wide moat rating. So basically the quality rating, say it's a strong business. We don't have to go through a heap, Mark, just maybe even just a couple that have received that in Australia, just to give some context around what that might look like for people that are still figuring this out. The first thing I would say is when we talk about moat, 
what Morningstar has done as part of our moat methodology is we have identified five sources of moat. And a company can have multiple, first of all, but really those five sources, maybe kind of walking through those. And I won't, I won't necessarily, I can if you want, but I won't necessarily do a company for each one of those. But, you know, I can at least talk about the different moats. So, you know, one that we probably don't need an example for that's pretty self-explanatory, hopefully, is cost advantage. So obviously, a sustainable competitive advantage for any company is if I can produce something for cheaper than my competitors, because that gives me all sorts of options. I can sell at the same price as my competitors, and I can have a higher margin, which is good, right? So I make more money off of every dollar of sale. That's a very good thing for me. I can cut prices, which will hopefully take market share. So I can make the same margin as my competitors and sell beneath them and sort of has to do with the company strategy. So I think that's something that's kind of intuitive. So maybe I won't give an example on that one, but a good example that are good moat source that maybe people don't think about as much that I can give an example for is switching costs. So basically switching costs refers to, is it expensive or a pain to switch providers? And this obviously is a really good thing if you're a company that has a lot of market share right now. And this is something that people can't be bothered to switch. And so a great example of this and something that's been in the news a lot lately is banks. And, you know, obviously with a bank and I don't need to tell anyone about the banking industry in Australia, you've got the big four, they have dominant market share. And with a bank, they kind of get their tentacles into you, right? So everything from you'll have your transaction account and you have all your mates in there so you can pay them easily. You have all your bill pay set up. You probably have multiple products. Maybe you've got a mortgage, you've got a transaction account, some savings accounts. It's all connected. You've got your direct deposit going in there for work. People don't like switching banks because it's a huge pain. And we've seen the news all the time, and there's complaints from the government, complaints from people that the banks are not passing on these interest rate rises, of course, to depositors. Yet, there's a reason they're not doing that. And they know that people don't want to switch. And they know that there's a lot of, uh, there would have to be a very big difference. And we can all find bank accounts that have higher yields, right? It's all sorts of online banks. There's all sorts of sources for that. But those switching costs are really, uh, really something that allows those banks to maintain that market share. And how this kind of plays out. So all the big four banks have a wide moat and they all have wide moats basically because of the two different examples I've walked through so far. Switching costs, number one. And then, of course, they're because of that, because they have so many deposits, they're sourcing funds for a lot cheaper than a lot of regional banks can do. And like a very simple example, and if we look at Bank of Queensland, for example, and we compare them to CBA. And so if we look at net margin, and so net margins is the difference between revenue and profit. CBA is at 45%, Bank of Queensland's at 25%, right? And that's how we see those moats play out. And it's kind of that combination, and they, they work in conjunction of switching costs, leading to really cheap funding for the banks. So yeah, that's a good example. I'll keep walking through these. So efficient scale is another one. This is a little tricky for people to figure out. I'll give a very brief example. It basically means that there is a market that is too small or so dominated by a certain company that it's not worthwhile for competitors to go in there. And so for like the too small, we can think about like a pharmaceutical company that has a drug that treats a very rare disease. So there aren't that many people that have it. They have something that is effective against it. Other people aren't going to invest. But even applies to things like Auckland Airport, which is a wide moat stock that we cover. And at the end of the day, Auckland is by far New Zealand's biggest city. Because of that, a lot of the international flights that go into New Zealand go there. Of course, that means there's a big connection network to try to take people domestically to different places. and. An airport is not the cheapest thing to build in the world. It takes a lot of government licenses. And even though New Zealand doesn't have that strict of a monopoly, people probably aren't going to build another airport in Auckland. And no other city in New Zealand is 
just from a demographic standpoint, going to catch Auckland or even come close in terms of population. And that's really where efficient scale plays out. It's an interesting one because I think people have issues sort of wrapping their head around it. The next one that I don't think needs an example is intangible. So, right, if we're talking, if we put our finance hats on, a tangible asset is something that sits on a balance sheet. You can see it, right? If I am uh, manufacturing something, a tangible asset is a building. If I'm Qantas, a tangible asset's a plane. You can go on and see it in the balance sheet. An intangible asset is something you can't see on a balance sheet. There's nothing in the financial statements that represent that. And so brand is a big one, right? So it's hard for me to compete with Coca-Cola with something I invent, right? They built hundreds of years of creating that brand. Um, it could be a patent. So somebody literally cannot compete with me because they can't build that product. It could be a government license. If I have exclusive access to have a casino in Sydney, somebody can't go build a new casino without going to the government. So those are intangible assets, things that you can't see. And then the last one is network effect. And network effect is basically anything that becomes more valuable, more customers you have. And, you know, social media is the perfect example. Like Instagram isn't much fun if you're the only person on it. You obviously need other people on there to make that actually engaging. So, yeah, those are the five different moats that you can have. And once again, companies can have combinations of multiple ones. So we've got efficient scale network effects, we've got cost advantage, intangible assets, and switching costs. Yes. Yeah. I love this switching costs one. Most people that listen to the show regularly know how much of a fan I am of software companies for this reason. But one of the things that software companies, to prove their moat, they can't just have switching costs, right? They also have to have the ability to increase prices because that proves that they have the switching costs. And you can see that, like you said, the, the banks is a perfect example. And I hadn't thought about that much recently because of the open banking initiative here in Australia, where it's easier than ever to switch banks and take your data with you and all this sort of stuff. But still, people complain and still people stay with the banks that they're already with. So it's a perfect illustration of a switching cost, uh, even for a business where it's like, I guess, an oligopoly rather than, say, a monopoly or or a duopoly or something like that. Just in the interest of time, Mark, I've got a couple more questions which I'm hoping we we can get to quite quickly. And these are more, I guess, educational in nature and it's really a passion point of mine to hear how you explain these things is really interesting to me is how do you personally think about investment risk, say, in contrast to what we get taught in academic theory, you know, like the, the academia's beta, all these types of things that seem quite abstract to a lot of people? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think you, you said it perfectly. The way that the industry defines risk doesn't apply, in my mind, to me. So, you know, we talk about volatility from an industry. Is something going to bounce around a lot in price? That's what we consider risk. But, you know, really the risk is that we're all investing, whether we've taken the time, and I would encourage people to do this, whether we've taken the time to define a goal and define where you want to get, or we haven't, we're all investing for a reason, right? So whether that reason is we're paying for retirement or we want to buy a house or whatever reason you have, we're all investing for a reason. We're not just going through this activity for the sake of it. And so in reality, if you have a long time frame, you shouldn't care about volatility. Volatility causes issues with investors. There's behavioral risk, but we shouldn't care about volatility. So the real risk is achieving your goal. And really, the real risk then means you need a certain return, and you should calculate it, but you need a certain return to achieve your goal. So the real risk we have is not meeting that return. And so when people are so focused on volatility and you know the way that we go through these risk tolerance questionnaires and things like that, I'm really scared if my account bounces around. Well, that's great. You can keep all your money in a term deposit, but you will never achieve your goal. And that's the risk. And I think if people frame it that different way, like we have to give up something to get high returns. And what we have to give up is volatility. We have to have things bounce around. We have to go through that stress. So yeah, I think risk, just the industry way and the academic way, as you put it, of describing it just doesn't fit most investors. I really like that. It's um, There's two things that come to mind, that volatility is the price of admission, as they say. And the other one is, uh, I don't know who said this, but I, I'm just kind of relaying this. Is like risk is the, I guess, risk is should be defined as 
that you don't meet your goal. You know, what's the risk that you don't meet your goal? Whatever that is, that should be how you consider risk. That's how I think about it as well. And so if we're long-term investors looking to compound our wealth, well, if you have an ambitious goal for your wealth creation, the risk is that you don't invest enough or you don't compound fast enough to get to that point. And um, that means taking risk in the short term, of course, as well. So I have got one kind of question maybe for extra resources, maybe something that has influenced you is what's one investing book that you think is underrated? We, we hear about all the classics, but what's something that you've read that you think this is a really good book and a really informed way I think about things? The book that probably changed my approach to investing the most that I read a long time ago was Jeremy Siegel's book, Stocks for the Long Run. He's written a couple kind of similar books. And, you know, the thing that really resonated with me is he went back and he looked at, and I think he wrote the book, I think it was in the early 90s. He went back and he looked at something between, I think, 1925 and a couple of years before he wrote the book. And he looked at what was the best performing share in the US. And so much stuff happened during that time period, right? There was obviously a computer got invented, the internet got invented, like all this stuff happened. We had airplanes, we had mass production of airplanes, mass production of automobiles. And the best performing stock was Philip Morris. And so Philip Morris is a cigarette company and it's since broken up. There's still a Philip Morris, but it's broken up into a couple of different entities. And he talked about why that was. And sort of the two reasons were not, and people gravitate towards, I got to invest in whatever industry is growing faster. Smoking was not growing over that period. Smoking in the US peaked in the early 60s. You obviously had the sort of widespread knowledge that it causes health problems. There were taxes were raised. They weren't able to market anymore. All this stuff that you would think that's going to make this a terrible business. But all of that was built into the share price. So it was trading at low valuations. It paid very high dividends. And ultimately, that outpaced every other share that was trading in the US during that time period. And so, you know, what it taught me, and, you know, I'm kind of a big proponent of not chasing returns, chasing fads, the next big thing. It taught me that, you know, when we're evaluating an investment, we need to look beyond that. And we actually have to look at the fundamentals. And Philip Morris, like them or not, was a great business. They couldn't invest in marketing. They couldn't invest in expansion. So what they do, they gave a bunch of money back to their shareholders and ran it really efficiently. And, you know, ultimately, that is what we're looking for as investors. This sounds awfully like some of the coal stocks we have in Australia now, where it's not necessarily seen as a growth industry, but these companies are super profitable and they don't know what to do with their capital. And similarly, oftentimes those two companies can be put in the sin stock bin amongst investors, tobacco and, and coal mining. So maybe there are other similarities there, but that's great. So I've written that down stocks for the long run. I haven't read that before. Just as a special mention, I, I do want to call this out because I asked Mark in advance if he could organize for us to get a discount if you wanted to join Morningstar Investor. It's 45% off if you use the coupon code a dollar day, sorry, dollar a day. And there's a link in the show notes. Check that out. RAS doesn't benefit in any way from this, just so we are clear. But if you do want to take it up, absolutely. Like you get stocks, ETFs, data on companies, et cetera. I think it's a fantastic resource for anyone, whether you're an Australian investor or a global investor. Some of the, the quality analysts that Morningstar have are just, it's second to none. So go and check that out. There's a link in the show notes if you want to explore that more. Mark, maybe the final question for me is, I often hope that this question brings out some unusual answers and some outside of the box thinking, but maybe it's just vanilla and it's something that you think that few other people would think about investing business or finance. You know, it's interesting. I, I was I was trying to think about this because I did I did see the question before we did this. And things about finance that I guess is everyone sort of accepts and everyone says, but doesn't nobody does is long-term investor, right? And you know, everybody talks about being a long-term investor. It's kind of like the playbook that you have to go through. Oh, I'm a long-term investor. I care about valuations, but you know, people are not long-term investors. And you know, if you go back to the 1950s. And you look at the average holding period for a share in the U.S., it was eight years. And now it's five and a half months. And it's sort of this remarkable change, right, that you, know, you were talking about sort of buy-sell recommendations as triggers. And obviously, there's technology and there's all this stuff that's just inducing us to trade more and more. And we know that leads to terrible outcomes. 
higher taxes, higher fees. Investors, and there's all sorts of studies, generally the things you buy perform worse than the things you've sold. So it leads to all these bad things. And also in the professional space, like I looked up the turnover on all the funds in a Lipper database last night, and it was 39%. And that includes index funds, which is like shocking, right? Because broad index funds don't turn over at all. So 39% basically means you are recycling your entire portfolio in less than three years. And we know that's higher for active managers. So I would say long-term investing, everybody says it, but think about what that actually means. And when you buy something, keep it. Um, like there are going to be times that company's not going to do well, but overall, just keeping that for long time periods is really the way to achieve your goals and the way to let compounding work for you. I love that answer, Mark. I really do. And I love that you backed it up with some data there to go with that because that just adds substance to that view that we all have on the inside of the industry is that a lot of people talk about it, not many people do about it. And even in professionals, it's probably even more accentuated. So just really think about that if you're listening at home and a fund manager comes out, someone comes out in the media and says, sell, 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 that may not apply to you. So please remember that, even if you hear it here on the show. <laughs> so <laughs> That's just as important, if not more important. So uh, Mark, I really do appreciate you taking the time to join us today and share some of your wisdom. And if people want to find out more about you, I'll put a link in the show notes to the Morningstar Investor website. Once again, thanks for joining me, mate. Awesome. Thank you very much. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.